Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're going to be in First uh, Kings chapter 14 tonight. Probably get through two chapters. Um, before we even get into context, I'm going to say this. We're reading about six different kings that were largely not very effective. So if you can find a message in these chapters tonight, can you just jot that down and share it afterwards? And we'll trust, because usually I can make some great connections to some deeper thoughts and things. I just give up tonight. It's just two books, we're going to, two chapters we're going to get through because God put it here. And I was thinking and praying and saying, Lord, I'm so glad we have your word. We can open it up. We can see your instruction for us. I had a hard time finding that instruction tonight. So I have a couple notes for you, but for the most part, I'm going to need your help tonight. The context of 1 Kings chapter 4 is that we saw, we are in the consequences of Solomon's sin. He sinned, the Lord took away 10 of the tribes from his son. Um, and we have a split kingdom of Israel, so it kind of goes back and forth. We're going to go from Judah to Israel. Judah's the southern part of the split, and Israel's the northern part of the split. Um, we saw Jeroboam uh, become the king of the northern ten tribes. He immediately creates a new form of Judaism by breaking some core things. He put up idols. He made a Judaism that was more about convenience than sacrifice, more about compromise than holiness, and he made up the rules that anybody who wanted to could be a priest. And they started making priest ordinations based on their own will versus the Levites that God had set aside. So at the end of chapter 13, Rehoboam is obeying God and not going to war with the north, but we're going to see that both of their sons decide they're going to go to war anyways. So in the next two chapters, it's almost constant war, but we get a parallel history. There's a parallel history because they're looking for Messiah. And they want to know where that's going to happen. And if God chose the Jewish people as separate and sacred, then they're going to track the histories of all 12 tribes as much as they can, at least until Assyria hits. So we get to verse 1 of, of chapter 14. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there, who told me that I would be king over this people, and take with you ten loaves, some cakes, a jar of honey, and go to him, and he'll tell you what will become of the child. And Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh, came to the house of Ahijah, but Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of age." One of the reasons he's sending his wife to the prophet Ahijah is during this era of history, the prophets also had insights as to health. So they were often consulted for health. There's other examples of that. So going to, to not only know the basic issues of the law, because we went through Leviticus, there were lots of health laws, remember? So they would go through some of those things. But they also could consult God and say, what do we do here? And so they were trusted in that kind of way. Jeroboam, being the king of the northern kingdom, doesn't want it. You'd think he'd be good friends with the Haisha and happy to talk to him. But because of all the idolatry, he's ashamed to talk to a person of God. This happens all the time. 
that when people are living in sin, it's actually harder to go and renew those relationships with godly people. In fact, there's a conviction that comes with doing this. So instead of Jeroboam going in himself, he sends his wife. Instead of just sending his wife, he sends her in disguise. So there's, there's basically this idea that you're going to hide from yourself. Uh, verse 4 talks about how his eyes were glazed by reason of age. <clears throat> What's odd here is this whole disguise doesn't make any difference whatsoever because he's blind. So there was no need for the disguise in the first place. But when things get real, and I, I think this is one thing to draw here, when things get real like your kid's sick, Jeroboam still knows who to go to. He's still going to the person that serves Yahweh because he knows Yahweh has power. Even after years of serving all these other gods, he knows exactly who to go talk to. So he knows those idols can't help him. They're amusing, they're entertaining, but they never heal you. So those things you worship that are of the world, when things get tough, they're not there to help you. Then you get to verse 3, it says, and also take with you. There's an interesting thing here that you have the disguise thing, like he thinks he can hide from God, like Adam and Eve made that mistake. Why does he think that his wife's going to hide from God? Like this is a prophet of God that will know the, the deepest secrets of the universe, but he's thinking that a disguise is going to stop him from recognizing his wife. And then he says, also take with you, and he sends her with all these gifts as though he can buy favor from God. That's a mistake that humans were making since Esau. You can't just buy God. And then it says Ahijah could not see. He's physically blind, but he spiritually can see everything that's going on. So verse 5. Now the Lord said to Ahijah, here's the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her. I like the summary. Thus and thus you'll say to her. And for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was. When Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps and she came in the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I've been sent to you with bad news. I love this. First of all, you see the character of God. There's a straightforwardness. There's an honesty to this. It's a direct thing. It uncovers the sin or the disguise instantly. Like, let's just get that out of the way. And the way he does it, I think, is also fairly gracious. I've been sent to you with bad news. Like, he just pulls the Band-Aid off right off the bat. Two sentences, it's over. She thinks that she's going on behalf of Jeroboam, but he flips the relationship. You haven't been sent to me. I've been sent to you by God. And it instantly shifts the conversation. So they thought they were running things. How silly that is. You don't do that with a prophet of God. Verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam. Now he turns her into the messenger for God. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you've done more evil than all who were before you. That's not a good title or designation. For you've gone and made yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger, and you've cast me behind your back. God lays out the accusation. Here's what God has against Jeroboam. Notably, he's the worst king ever, and that's what he puts on the table. Notice that God's really clear here about the heart. He says, my servant David, he, he, God doesn't even remember the sins. He remembers the heart of David. The point of being a godly person isn't to be perfect. It is to be repentant of our sin. And that was the one thing David did that these other kids, kings haven't done, is that when his sin was pointed out, he repented of it, and he stopped doing it. 
Verse 9, evil done in front of your face is how that translates in the Hebrew. Um, Evil done evil in front of your face, verse 9. So there's this idea that what you're doing right now is you're not just doing evil, you're doing evil right in front of me. I can see everything you're doing just like I can identify your wife when she's in a disguise. I think sometimes we think we can fool God. We really can't. We can fool other people in church. We can fool people outside the church. God sees right through all of it. If there's something in your life that's hidden, God knows exactly what it is. And you're not getting away with anything. You made for yourself other gods. That's the core sin of Jeroboam. He gave his affection to shrines and images and idols. And those things were just an insult to God. He gave his heart to things that don't matter, and he gave his love to things that don't matter. And then that phrase at the end of verse 9, you cast me behind your back. God should lead us, and if he leads us, he bears our weight. But if we throw him behind our back, the phrase here of cast me behind your back is used in the Hebrew as a total disregard or forgetting of God. You've tossed God aside like trash on the roadside. There's an indication or a connotation here of worthlessness. And the next few verses are going to reinforce that. You made me worthless. You didn't regard me. And this is, a, this is a trap because people will grow up Christian. They'll grow up in a Christian environment. They'll grow up with Christian parents. But then they go on and live their life however they want to, basically throwing God behind their back. And it's something that God does take issue with. And he's going to address that with Jeroboam. There's consequences for that behavior. For the repentant, God says the exact same phrase about our sins. Listen to this, Isaiah 38, 17. It's the same phrase. Indeed, I was on my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For the repentant, our sins get thrown behind God's back. For the unrepentant, we throw God behind our back. And it's just the same idea that God just wants to take those sins because they're so disgusting. He wants to throw them away like trash. But he's waiting for a repentant heart to do that without a second thought. Not even just trash. I'm not talking like paper shreddings. Think of it like the stinky trash you don't even want to have around. That's what God thinks of our sin. But part of our sin is we do the same thing to God and we turn it around. Verse 10, it keeps getting reinforced. The consequence, therefore, verse 10, therefore behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and would cut off Jeroboam, every male in Israel, bond and free. I'll take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it's gone. Same idea. You've thrown me away, I'm going to throw you away. This is tragedy. I, I mean, you can't take a lot of life lessons out of this other than don't do that. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city. The birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. So this is in keeping with the idea of casting things behind our back. And God's giving a just punishment for what Jeremiah, Jeroboam did. This is also a terrifying thought to sinners. That if you just disregard the God Almighty, he's going to disregard you. And it's just when he does that. It's actually kind of fair game. God could have set up a second enduring house with Jeroboam, just like he did with David. He saw a good heart in Jeroboam, brought him into the kingship, just like he did David, and he could have had, we could all be like the house of David and the house of Jeroboam today, but we don't talk like that, because Jeroboam blew it. The terms here are extremely vulgar. I don't know how to 
I'll, I'll keep it PG-13 as best I can, but they're not PG-13 words. These are words, when you look at them in the Hebrew, they're intentionally crude language, and I think God's using them for impact. You threw me behind your back, so he's going to cut off from Jeroboam every male. In the Hebrew, that's karat, which is literally to cut off Jeroboam. It is a weird translation. Cut off Jeroboam, Satan's wall. Literally, the word Satan is in there, adversary. Or in other words, or at the wall, the Hebrew there is ker, can be the sides of the altar too. It gets used in that thing. So when it says that I'm going to cut off Jeroboam, it's I'm going to cut you off from the sides of the altar. I'm going to take you out of my presence and leave you there. Um, literally, the word every male in Israel is every adversary. In the, and again, the Hebrew word is Satan. Um, this is also translated, if you have a King James Version, it says, him that pisseth against the wall. And again, if you're thinking of the wall as it, it, it used in terms of the sides of the altar, I'm going to cut off all of you that just piss on my altar, like you don't hold my sovereignty as sovereign, and you disregard me. The word cut off there has added connotations, but I'm going to keep it PG-13, and that's why they translate it as I'm going to get rid of all the males, but it's not really a male concept in the Hebrew. It's just the idea that people are going to be cut off. And then it says, as one takes away refuse, that's a really graceful translation of the word refuse right? It's as one would throw away poop or something even more vulgar. It's not just throwing away trash. It's throwing it away with a pinched nose. I'm going to get you the heck away from my house because you're an odor to me. And you get it away as fast as possible. So essentially God's saying, Jeroboam, you treated me as worthless. I'm going to do the exact same thing. You dumped me like I wasn't worth anything and I'm going to dump you like a stinky bag of dung. And I'm going to get you out of, my, out, of my, out of my face. It's spoken in very blunt human terms. And if anything, God's really gracious that he approaches humanity with very blunt human terms. It's hard to misunderstand what God's saying to Jeroboam here because it's so graphic. And I think sometimes there's things that are serious to God and he brings it down to our level even and communicates it to a way we can understand. Sin is a disgrace to God and it's a front. And if we know God's holiness and we know his love, to sin in his face is a horrid thing to do. Then you get to verse 12. He's, remember, he's still talking to Jeroboam's wife. Arise, therefore, and go to your own house. And when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he's the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good towards the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. God mercifully gives the first death in Jeroboam's family an actual proper burial, and proper burial was a big deal to Jewish people. The reason he gives, though, is not out of honoring Jeroboam, it's that he found something good in this child. So he's going to get a proper burial. Remember, death isn't as big a deal to God as it is to us. For us, it seems like the end of everything. For God, he's just bringing this child home. And, and that soul will be with him. It's interesting that even a child, that God's identifying that child's future before the future ever happens. Like, I never thought of it this way. Doesn't often get cited, but verse 13 is a really solid pro-life argument. Like, here's a child that God's recognizing something about that child before they've ever come of age. 
So when God creates us in the womb and knits us together in the womb, he's finding something good of that kid even as it's happening. And God then judges that kid accordingly even though it's outside of a chronological timeline. I just think that's a phenomenal verse. Verse 14, Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now? I like how just God's talking to her. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot the Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they've made their wooden images provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who has made Israel sin. These 10 tribes broke off. They had every chance to serve God. But because they haven't and they're not part of the house of David, God simply doesn't need those 10 tribes anymore. So the first part of the prophecy, we always see prophecies work like this. The child dying is simply a confirmation that Ahijah is speaking on behalf of the Lord. That when she gets home and that child dies, she knows darn well that the rest of the prophecy is true too. God doesn't ask us just to take a prophet because they say they're a prophet. He, that prophet is confirmed in the first immediate act, but verse 14 through 16 is what's going to happen in the future. So this does come to pass. So we've already historically seen the end of this. There's another nation that rises called Assyria, and they do, they do this to the T, but they'll get more warnings before it actually happens. Verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed, and she came to Tirzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Uh, verse 18 is to make sure that we, the readers, understand that this fulfilled a prophecy. God said it, and it happened. If that's true, and God always keeps his word, we can, have, we can trust that God's faithful. And he will not end his word. It gets legitimacy to every other prophecy whenever we see one come true. So we know Jesus prophesied because he did things in the past tense that came true. And we can trust that those prophecies will come true in the future. So God, throughout the Old Testament, throughout Jesus' ministry, showed prophecy after prophecy after prophecy getting fulfilled. And here we see another one. God always confirms the prophet before we're expected to believe the prophet. So when Jesus rose from the dead, that was confirmation of every prophecy he gave to us because we don't see a lot of people rise from the dead. Now the rest of the Acts of Jeroboam, verse 19, he made war and how he reigned. Indeed, they're written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. That, the period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his fathers and then Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. This is how the book of Kings is going to end all of these reigns. <laughs> and in fact... 19, when they say this is all in another book, what they're saying is we're not going to give you all the details right now. So a lot of the commentary you read on this is going to jump back and forth between Kings and Chronicles. But when it references Chronicles, and I know we're headed there here and however long it takes us to get to Chronicles, we're just going to cover all the details when we get to Chronicles. But for right now, the point is Jeroboam defied the Lord. He was given warning. He then was... was judged by God, and it gives, it gives reason for the rest of the history. And Kings really focuses on the spiritual aspects of these kings. Spiritually, did they follow the Lord or didn't they? And the highlights that you get in the book of Kings are, are the stories that tell us whether or not they were following the Lord. Um, if you want to go into Chronicles and read more about Rehoboam, 2 Chronicles chapter 13. So you can do that Bible study on your own. Then we switch to the southern kingdom. We're going back to Rehoboam, verse 21. 
And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, to put his name there, his mother's name was Naamah, the Ammonitess. And now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy in their sins which they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill and under every, under every green tree. And there, also were, and, they, and there were also perverted persons in the land. And they did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So in verse 23, when it talks about these idols, we know that from past chapters, that's Ashtaroth, Molech, Chemosh, which are gods of lust, greed, and power. They're serving after the world. And they're giving themselves over to it wholeheartedly with no regrets. Verse 24, there were also perverted persons. When you don't serve God, you serve something else. And that's a perversion. So people go at verse 24 and they see that um, actually the word perverted there in the Hebrew is kades, which means a sodomite or a male prostitute. So people go after this and they go after homosexuality. But I think in the context of this, they're just talking about people that are perverted. They're living way outside of God's rule of life. And there's a generalization to that when we read it in the passage. So there's a false worship that happens first and then false actions that follow it. First they give their hearts to the stupid stuff and then they do stupid things. And God asks us to do the opposite. We give our hearts to the Lord and then we do godly things. Because whatever you worship becomes your actions eventually. And so a nation that watches junk on TV eventually starts to do the junk. And that's just how it works. It's how nations fall. It's how they get corrupted. False worship leads to false actions. Honest and authentic worship leads to honest and authentic lives. And there's a, you choose, like Joshua said, choose this day who you serve. All the abominations we've seen, and the word abomination get used a lot in the Old Testament. It has to do with a lot of things. The word abomination is used for food in Leviticus 11. Abominable food, eating shrimp, right? Alyssa agrees with that. It's, it's used in reference to homosexuality, Leviticus 11.22. It's used in reference to idols, Deuteronomy, everything, but 7.26 is one example. And an abomination is used in reference to Deuteron- in Deuteronomy 17.4 to adultery and fornication. It's an abomination to God. Ultimately, the defiance of God's law is the definition of right and wrong and choosing to do the wrong thing. Either you agree with how God set it up or you don't. Make a choice. Verse 24, abominations were basically all religious practices of the Canaanites. Right? They did abominations and they didn't mind it. And the Canaanite people that they reference in verse 24, part of why God wanted them pushed out of the land is because they were so twisted and corrupted, God wanted to end those cultures. They were bad for the planet. We can see in archaeology, Canaanite bodies were so riddled with diseases that it was, it was hurting their genetic disposition. Judah is, in the end, no better than the Canaanites that they pushed out of the land, which is tragic. So that would make sense for Judah then. In the same way that God had the Canaanites get pushed out of the land, what God's going to do for Judah is they're going to get pushed out of the land. They don't get the privilege of living in God's chosen land if they don't honor the God that put them there. So at some point, if you're going to defy God, there's a territory that, needs to, that God's going to claim. 
In verse 25, it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. Only five years. Five years from Solomon. The golden age of Israel only lasts five years. Think of the tragedy of that. They could have had 100, 200 years of glory. And they just go after other gods so quickly. No enemy of Israel had the ability to defeat Israel. The only thing that could defeat Israel was Israel itself and the hearts that followed after other things. New Testament says there is nothing that the enemy can do against the church of God. And the, the gates of hell cannot stand against the church of God. The only thing that beats the church of God is the people of God not honoring their God. And I just love that idea. So it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and he took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. Again, 2 Chronicles 12 gives a, a much more detailed account of all this. The Egyptian records show that in 925 BC, Shishak raided and controlled the trade outs. By this time in history, they did not have pharaohs in Egypt. They had converted to a dynasty or a kingship. So the Bible's actually being incredibly historically accurate in verse 26 when it says, or in verse 25 when it says the king of Egypt came and attacked. Shishak went by the title king, not by the title pharaoh. What's also interesting, and in, in, so just a thought, a lot of that gold that Israel had accumulated, remember they had a bunch of gold when they left, left Egypt because they pretty much looted Egypt when they left? And they took all that gold and made it into a golden calf, remember? And then they melted down the golden calf and they used a lot of that gold to build into the ark and to line the, the walls of the inside of the thing. And they brought gold in from all over the place, but it's an interesting thought that Egypt's going to take out of Israel a huge amount of gold and it's almost like God's giving it back to Egypt, right? This was to get my people established and set up, but because they've abandoned me, you can have your gold back. Gold shields are worthless in battle. They were simply a decoration that was in the, the house of the cedars that Solomon built. They were a majesty of the wealth of Israel. So when they get taken back by Egypt, when they lose their heavenly metal, because gold's an image of the heavenly metals, it's kind of curious here what Rehoboam does. He replaces the heavenly with the earthly. Remember, bronze is in contact with the earth. It's the earthly thing. Verse 27, Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway to the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them and then brought them back into the guard room. So bronze is actually good for warfare because it's hard and it can take a blow. So it's interesting that the... the the shields that were never made for war, they were just made to show God's glory. Those get robbed as their hearts go astray and what replaces them is earthly things. If there's any connection at all or thought here, I think Christians do that a lot. When the spirit of God leaves due to, due to behavior that's ungodly, we replace things that look like the old thing and it's not actually blessed at all. It's just an image or a shadow of those things. So there's kind of a tragedy here. The beautiful display turns into a bronze display. The gold shields turn into bronze shields. The, owner, the, the decoration of this hall for the nation of Israel turns into something that guards actually carry to guard the king. Kind of a fearful act if you need all those security guards. Majesty turns into an, a sad attempt to keep up appearances. That, yeah, we're still okay. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam 
and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all of their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His, mother na- his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess, and Abijah, his son, reigned in his place. It's curious that they started the story of Rehoboam with his mom's identity and ended it with his mom's identity. Remember that the fact that she's not an Israelite is an indication of Solomon taking foreign wives. And the author's just pointing out for us that this was the son of one of those foreign wives. For what it's worth, the the writer wants us to make sure we get that point. Rehoboam starts in sin, and we're going to, if you read in 2 Chronicles, he actually humbles himself before God, and there's a small revival in there. But in the book of Kings, they leave that all out. Because at the end of the day, the people went further away from God. And in Kings, that's kind of the trajectory of the storyline that we're supposed to pick up. Get to 1 Kings 15, they just keep rolling. Um, what's interesting, though, is the benchmark for one nation is actually defined by the other. So they'll say the third year of this king, or in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the northern kingdom, Abijam became king over Judah, the southern kingdom. They actually date each other. So you get really accurate dates in kings that we can look back and start creating timelines if we so please. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. That's not a long reign. And his mother's name was Ma'aka. Literally in the Hebrew, that word means oppression. Who names their daughter oppression? Or to be pressed. So the granddaughter of Abishalom, again, that's a twist on the word. Uh, When we saw this in uh, Samuel, that was Absalom. And they've slightly changed the word there. And he walked in all the sins of his fathers, which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord God, as was the heart of his father David. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord is king, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except the matter of Uriah the Hittite. He, he made one big mistake. And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life, and now the acts of Abijam and all that he did. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. So Abijam rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. So we're just moving through the generations now. Abijam, or Abijah in Chronicles. It's interesting, in Chronicles, Abijah is the word they use for this king, and that means my father is Yahweh. Um, but in Kings, they changed the name. It's like the writers had a sense of humor, and they're, they're, they're making fun of his name here. And I think these little things are interesting. So bear with me. Instead of Abijah, Yahweh, at the end of the name, they change it to Yam, Abijam. And Abijam means in the Hebrew, my father is a yam. And so you're just little twists on the words that are in here. Um, obviously, yam in the English is a vegetable. But in the Hebrew, they're likely talking about the sea god of the Philistines. In other words, his heart went off to these other gods. And the writer didn't want to besmirch the name of Yahweh by calling him Abijah because he didn't honor Yahweh at all. If anything, he honored Yam. And so you see that name getting changed there. In the Chronicles, I think a little more of an attempt to be historical. Um, Chronicles is not really necessarily thinking of the spiritual aspects of these kings. Um, But even today, my father is a yam works just fine if you're trying to make fun of the name. Everything measured against David, and I I think we can pull that out of those first verses. Each of these kings is being measured against David, not against Solomon. 
David is the measure that you have to live up to. And we're going to keep seeing that. The big thing with Abijam is that he has no relationship with God. He's not serving God. He's not following God. And the end result of that is constant war, constant conflict, constant strife between the peoples of God. Three years is by no standard a blessed life or reign in the Bible. Like they see long reigns as a blessing and short reigns is clearly not a blessing by God. They go out of their way to add the commentary that, that for David's sake alone, this line continues on. And it's actually not just for David's sake. They don't know the name of the, who it's for the sake of. But we're going to see in the New Testament, the reason God keeps this line going is that he promised David that a Messiah would come. So this line's being kept alive not because of their behavior, because Jeroboam just gets cut off. They're being kept alive because God promised a Messiah through these kings. Verse 9. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, Asa became king over Judah, the southern kingdom. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maaka, the granddaughter of Ab Absalom, or Abi Shalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And he has this nice long reign. So each king is not doomed to be worse than their father. This is refreshing that we see Asa. Even though his father was a mess, and his grandfather was a mess, and you could argue his great-grandfather was a mess, Asa chose to serve the Lord. You're not doomed by what your parents did. You can choose to follow the Lord. And so we, I just think that's so, so refreshing in verse 11. He chooses what's right. And they point that out first because he, does he, he doesn't do it all the way, but they just note this. Note the use, usage here of his father David. I just, in verse 11, as did his father David. The word father can be used really broadly. It doesn't mean a biological fathership. Obviously, David's his great-great-grandfather. But they're using the word father here because they're talking about inheritance. So when you talk about your father in heaven, it's not because like we're biologically descendant of the almighty God, like Jesus was, but because we have an inheritance in heaven that God's promised us. So he's our father. So in verse 12, it says, He banished the perverted persons from the land, removed all the idols that his fathers made. He removed the Ma'aka, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had been made an obscene image of Asherah, and Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook of Kidron. A few little historical things in there. To write a nation, one of the things he does, you can't change the hearts of the people if you're king. Like, you can't force people to worship different things. But you can say, we're not going to have your stuff out where everyone can see it. We're going to have a nation where we don't have to look at your stuff. So I think it's interesting that one of the things Asa does to write the nation is he gets rid of the highly sexualized images in front of everybody's eyes. And, and really goes after Ashtra as the thing, that the public display of these things is something that hurts the people. So the fixation needs to be on the Lord, um, but one of the ways to get rid of that is to stop the temptation of fixating on things that would be everywhere you look, on these high places. There's a reference to Queen Mother, first reference we've seen to that in the Old Testament. There will be more references. In the ancient Israel, I think this is an interesting thing, when it comes to civic or governmental leadership, Israel doesn't seem to have a huge problem with women in leadership. So when you've got a younger king and the mother is older and wiser, queen mother would be a role or a civic role where essentially she runs the kingdom. 
even though the son is still the king, she takes that leadership and does it. The problem with Ma'aka isn't that she's a queen mother. The problem is the obscene image of Ashereth that she put up. The reason he takes her down is because of her worship practices, not because of who she is. So it's common in Israel. We're going to see that, frankly, most ancient nations would do that. If you had a five-year-old take the kingship, you left the five-year-old there, but you had to have people that would help rule the nation. So they'd have a chamberlain, they'd have a hand of the king, or a queen mother would be somebody that would take over and do that. Kidron Valley, last thing. Get this mention of the brook Kidron, and that's where they burned these images. We're going to see as we go through the Bible that the Kidron Valley is right outside Jerusalem. It's a big trench along one of the sides of Jerusalem. It makes Jerusalem a really defensible city. But the fact that the Kidron Valley, this is the first reference to it being a garbage can. This is where you throw the trash. By Jesus' time, they have so much trash in the Kidron Valley that the oils in the trash keep a smoldering burn going all the time. And they keep throwing trash in there, and it was a giant burn pit. And later it became called Gehenna, or a place called Hell, an ever-burning location. And this is the first reference to things being burned in Gehenna. So it's a place where the fire never goes out because the sin just keeps getting thrown in there. And they keep putting the garbage in that spot. So in the high places, verse 14, high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was loyal to the Lord all his days. But he also brought into the house of the Lord the things which his father had dedicated and the things which he himself had dedicated, silver and gold utensils. It's interesting that Asa starts to replace the things that Egypt took away bringing back those gold implements and those gold items and trying to reestablish the temple. Verse 14, the writer of Kings wants us to note spiritually what happened to Israel. So largely these texts are being assembled after they've been hauled away to Babylon. So it's a reflection as what happened? How did we go from David to Babylon? And so when they note this, they're basically saying Asa did a lot of really good things but he never got rid of those other things. He got rid of the public displays of idol worship, but he never got rid of the locations and places where it happened. In other words, he tolerated it, and he put up with it. He wasn't about to to tolerate Ashtaroth poles, but he was okay to tolerate some of the other things. And in that sense, he didn't quite purge the land of that false worship. Um, Again, he removed other gods, 2 Chronicles 14. You can get his whole story. Uh, But the writer of Kings doesn't really get into it, so I'm not going to either. Verse 16, now there was war between Asa and Baasha, the king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, the king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to King Asa, the king of Judah. He tried to barricade or put a blockade on trade routes into Judah. And that's not hard to do in this hill country. You just have to pick the right spot. So the northern kingdom starts building fortresses against the southern kingdom. In verse 18, then Asa took all the silver and gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house, and he delivered them into the hands of his servants. This is Asa's big sin. This is where he fell short. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabrimon, the son of Hezion, the king of Syria, who dwelt in Damascus, saying, let there be a treaty between you and me, and there, as there was between my father and your father, see, I've sent you a present of silver and gold. Come and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he'll withdraw for me. Instead of trusting in the Lord, he trusts in Syria. 
and he sends Syria a boatload of money to buy them off so that the king of Israel doesn't have an ally to the, to the north. And that isn't going to please God, who wants, God really wants the king of Judah to turn to him for their safety. But so it works. So verse 20, so Ben-Hadad heeded King Asa and sent the captains of the armies against the cities of Israel. And he attacked Aijan, Dan, Abel, Beth, Maaka, and all of Sinaroth, which is Sinaroth's earlier name for Galilee or the Galilee region, with all the land of Naphtali. And now it happened with Baasha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and he remained in Terza. So part of the promised land actually gets lost here. So David went and cleared it all out. Joshua was commanded to clear it out to start with. So we start seeing a retraction of the territory of Solomon. And so we lose the land of Naphtali in verse 20. Um, in other words, Israel's getting chipped away at. And I think the enemy loves chipping away at the strongholds of godly people. Loves taking away pieces here and there of the territory that was claimed. Verse 22, then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. No one was exempted. And they took away the stones and the timber of Ramah, which Baasha had used for building. And with them, King Asa built Geba of Benjamin and Mitzpah. So the northern kingdom loses territory to the north, and the southern kingdom of Judah pushes back and takes control of that valley, and they build their own strongholds. When God's people fight, it's just ugly. And just a thought, like, they're spending so much time fighting each other that they're giving up the treasuries of God, the blessings of God, just to combat and do battle with other people that are also the people of God. And it's a tragedy, and we should read this as a tragedy. Verse 23, the rest of all the acts of Asa and all his might and all that he did and the cities which are built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Yes, they are. We'll get there soon. But in the time of his old age, he was diseased in his feet. So Asa rested with his father and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Weirdest little thing in the world in verse 23. They just add in the fact that he had foot problems. And, and it's not clear, they don't give us commentary on it as to why they added that in, just that he's diseased in his feet. Um, the book of Chronicles, I will bring this up, they do give a reason for the feet thing. They say that he had feet problems because he did not seek God in some of his decisions, that it was a warning from God. Uh, again, uh, there's a consequence to sin. It's, uh, it's implied here. Um, but in Chronicles, they lay it out a lot clearer. So we're going to jump to Jehoshaphat next week. Nobody got... All right. Thank you. For now, we're going to go back to... We're going to say that Judah was Rehoboam, Abijam, Asa, and then we'll go to Jehoshaphat. So we've got the first three kings. We'll pick up on King 4 next week. Now we're going to go back to the northern kingdom. Now, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. He reigned over Israel two years, short reign. So we can expect that he's not going to be doing great. Verse 26 says that same thing. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked the way of his father and his sin by which he had made Israel sin. It's an odd thing for a father to name their son Nadab. This is not a good name in the history of Israel. You remember who Nadab was? Aaron had two sons who profaned the temple because they brought in funny smokes, right? Funny incense into the temple. Uh, probably some sort of incense that would have a, 
uh, barbiturate effect on people when they walked in. So they used some of the, the drugs of the pagan rituals and brought it into God's tabernacle. Remember, God ended Nadab and his brother instantly when that happened. What's that? Oh, Nadab and Abihu. Thanks, Paul. Um, the same, if that's the case, you would think that no Israelite would name their king Nadab. That's not a good tradition. So in Jeroboam naming his king Nadab, there is a defiance there because that's exactly what Jeroboam did. He twisted the religion that God had handed to them and the practices of that religion and he did whatever he wanted with it. So it's almost like Jeroboam wanted to honor Nadab. This is the first guy that defied God, and he named his kid after him. So he has the same heart. He has a short time span. Um, two years is a pretty inconsequential reign. Verse 27, Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah, the house of Issachar, conspired against him. The word Baasha, again, the northern kingdom's a mess. Baasha in the Hebrew means wicked. Who names their kid Wicked. And then you start thinking, well, actually, there's an entire Broadway show called Wicked, and they, the main character is celebrated as the hero. We're not that far from just doing the same kind of thing, is that you think things that God says are bad, and you start naming your kids after it. It's an act of defiance. We don't care what God thinks. My kid's wicked. And it becomes a positive word. So again, it's defiant. It's thumbing one's nose at God. And Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all the Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. And Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, the king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it was when he became king that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. So we're in it now. Wicked is reigning in the northern kingdom, um, and we have Asa ruling in the southern kingdom. He did not leave Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite. The author wants us to know that God promised this would happen to Jeroboam, and this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. You get the sense that Basha went and hunted down Jeroboam's family and killed every single one of them. And again, now they just look like the pagan kingdoms. There's nothing different for northern Israel. There's nothing godly about this nation. They look exactly like all the nations of the world. One person comes to reign, you kill all your competitors. It's just brutal. Verse 30, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord, the Lord God of Israel to anger. So God lets one wicked man kill off another wicked man. It effectively eliminates the house of Jeroboam. Prophecy done. Now, we're going to go through in the book of Kings, there's nine dynasties, nine kingships in the northern and southern kingdom. So we've seen the kingship of Saul. His dynasty never really got started. Saul was ended pretty quick. But you've also got the dynasty of David and all of David's line, which is going to continue all the way through to Jesus. But now you have this dynasty of Jeroboam, the third dynasty, gets cut off here in this passage. So we still have six more dynasties to go where God's just trading out families trying to find a godly king, anybody to lead his people that'll honor him. And along the way, thankfully, we're going to get some positive kings that have good things to show us about how to lead, how to bring people back to revival. We're going to get lots of great stories. We just don't get them tonight, right? Verse 31. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? 
And there was war between Asa and Basha, the king of Israel, all their days. Again, they're just always at war. And in the third year of Asa, the king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all of Tirzah and reigned 24 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And he walked the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he had made Israel sin. It's important then that we recognize that David's the example of a good king, even though he was a sinner. And Jeroboam's the example of a wicked king. And it gets referenced that. We did everything that Jeroboam did. So we see that there's nothing new under the sun. You either got people that follow the Lord or people that don't. That's the only division the Bible ever cares about. Do you follow the king or do you follow yourself? Or follow after the world? So Israel now is, the northern kingdoms had three wicked kings in a row. They've had rebellion against God's temple. They've had rebellion against God's law and his word. And they've had rebellion against the name of God, which is where they're supposed to be waiting for in Jerusalem by building their own holy cities. They've disregarded that the Messiah matters. So these chapters are instructional in some way, shape, or form. I like to say that we can always look to what is going on with Jesus. And the only thing I could think of is this, and then we're going to open it up for conversation because I'm interested to see what else you got. If we're not looking to Jesus, we're always going to be tempted to be wicked. And if we don't have our eyes on what God's plan is, that's why the northern kingdom so easily goes astray. Where in the southern kingdom, you see people going astray, but you also see kings that bring them back. And they're, be, they're able to be brought back because they still regard what God set up in Jerusalem and that they're waiting for his name to show up. And it's going to be Matthew chapter 1 where we learn the name. But they're still looking for that, and they're going to have kings that rise up in Judah that renew that worship and that waiting. And because of that, God sustains them. He sustains the temple because it has the records. All those scrolls that have been gathered from Genesis 1, those scrolls are sitting in the temple right now. And those Levites are copying it out so that we keep a record of it. To God, that's so much more important than the generation itself. So when we look back through history and we look at the people that follow God or don't, I think we sit in the same tradition today. Are we waiting for our king to come back or aren't we? And if we're not waiting for Jesus to come back and we're not looking to the throne for that to happen, we're easily led astray to, to being wicked just like everybody else. And so I think that there's something beautiful about that. Humanity's stubborn resistance to God's law is a destructive force in humanity. And the degree to which at any level we can hold to God's law and God's word is a, is a renewing and reviving source for humanity. And that's what we got. So let's say a word of prayer and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We know it's here for our instruction. We know it's here for our teaching. Um, Lord, it is so sad to see what you gave them. You handed them a nation and they just go after their own thing and they do it so quickly and so readily. Lord, may our hearts never go astray. May you look at what you've given us, the renewal, the regeneration, the new life in Christ you've handed us and may we never let it go. May we not take it for granted. Lord, may we pursue you with everything we have, our heart, our mind, and our soul, and pursue you like our life depends on it. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.